0: So, everyone i
1: Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Oline, Vicar Timothy Steele II. We serve the Saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Thank you for tuning in today. We uh, began our program with some uh, very somber and uh, austere music. I'm going to have Pastor Moline explain uh, that music to you in just a moment. Today we're going to be taking a look at a... Uh, special day set apart in the church december 28 on the church's calendar when we remember the holy the holy innocents martyrs and uh, it is a, uh, a a sad and uh, austere observance it is uh, it's a day when it's impossible not to think about the uh, sanctity of human life in our country and the horror of uh, abortion and all of the evils that are connected to abortion. It is uh, it's a difficult day, but it's a day that is important and necessary because we realize the nature of sin, and the nature of sin is such that uh, it is so horrific that we need an unbelievably great God to overcome the horror of sin. And coming right on the heels of Christmas, it is, uh, it is a perfect time to examine this uh, head on. Pastor, what can you tell us about that, uh, that music that we heard in our intro? And we're going to hear that as our bumper music throughout our uh, program today. What, uh, what, what is the, the music and why is it significant?
2: Well, the music is Psalm 137, which oftentimes is known as By the Waters of Babylon, There We Sat Down and Wept. And uh, it's a psalm that talks about the emotional feelings of the people of Judah after they had been carried away into captivity in Babylon. Uh, And they had lost their home, they had lost many of their family members, and the psalm uh, famously ends, uh, you know, for those who like to sing psalms, the last words are, Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. Uh, And in other words, it's this mournful time, this terrible time, where uh, even the desire to uh, kill your own children rather than to let them suffer in this foreign land under foreign rule uh, is, is prevalent. And it's been set to many different musical settings throughout the ages. The one we were listening to was an English one sung by the uh, King's College Cambridge Choir, uh, and uh, it's been set into a musical setting by Johann Sebastian Bach, uh, Heinrich Schutz, uh, both very famous Lutheran uh, musicians, uh, by Giovanni de Palestrina, whom you probably know a lot of sacred music by him as well um, you might not recognize it but but you do know it um, and uh, Luther even did a translation of and and setting of it um, in in one of his uh, we have the volume of all his musical settings it's it's contained therein and so it is one that's used oftentimes in these mournful times in these challenging times where we ask the question why do these terrible things happening and uh and it it is an important psalm and one that we kind of skip over because we always think that psalms should be these happy go lucky sort of praise sorts of things but sometimes uh things are difficult and challenging and there are psalms that deal with these sorts of um uh,
1: opportunities in our lives as well. And uh, one of the beautiful things of scripture is it does not whitewash or sugarcoat anything. It doesn't whitewash or sugarcoat the lives of our biblical hearers. We see Moses, Noah, David, uh, warts and all. We see them as uh, poor, miserable sinners redeemed by the blood of Jesus and by the grace of God we see sin in uh, in all of its fury and we see God in all of his glory and so today we want to apply that uh, that same understanding that same healing balm to uh, one of the most uh, horrific tragedies recorded in all of scripture probably paling only to the injustice of Good Friday Vicar, uh, the gospel reading appointed for the Holy Innocence Martyrs is Matthew two thirteen to 18. Please.
3: Now when the wise men had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, Weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more.
1: Okay, there we have uh, the flight to Egypt, and the slaughter of the holy innocents. We've got we got a lot to talk about here, Pastor, and uh, the quote and the uh, reference to the prophet Jeremiah, since Jeremiah 31:15 to 17, is our Old Testament reading. We'll, we'll save those uh, specifics for our look at the Old Testament reading. What can you tell us about what's happening in the Gospel of Matthew? You know, each one of the Gospels uh, starts in a very unique way. And the beginning of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, all have some uh, unique uh, characteristics. Mark does not have a birth narrative. Matthew and Luke do, but they are starkly different. What can you tell us about uh, Matthew chapter 1 and the first half of Matthew chapter 2 to kind of set the stage for what's going on here with the... uh, wise men departing.
2: Well, uh, in fact, Matthew's gospel is really important for us to understand uh, the time frame of the birth of Christ, historically speaking. And uh, we have these uh, famously uh, magi from the East that are coming uh, again, and I think fulfillment of Jeremiah's um, uh, writings 600 years beforehand. Uh, You have them come and they come to Herod and say, where's the king who's going to be born? We saw his star in the sky. And Herod is kind of a conniving, um, self-obsessed, at this point, kind of lunatic, uh, to be completely frank about it. An egomaniac lunatic um, who is very concerned about maintaining his own status quo and position within uh, the the land of Israel and then also uh, larger more he's kind of a crony of uh, the uh, Emperor Augustus uh, who is reigning at that particular time um, he's he's got his position because he knew who's who to suck up to. uh, And and so he wants to maintain that position of power and authority. And so he plays tricky with the wise men and says, oh, go find him and then I'll come worship him when really his whole plan is to eliminate all competition, even to the point of having uh, wives killed and sons killed, uh, rather than to let them compete with him on the political scene. Uh, And so uh, Herod here in our particular gospel lesson, the wise men don't go back and don't tell him uh, where Jesus is. And so he's going to go out and he's going to try and figure it out himself. He knows the Bible. Uh, He has people paid to tell him what the Bible says. So he listens to that and he goes and finds them. Now, at the same time, you know, we have... um, this I told you the historical scene. We know about the time King Herod died, about four ish B.C., give or take a year, and so that kind of tells us the time that Jesus is born, shortly before that death, and
1: um, so that kind of helps us set the the scene historically. Um, whenever I come across Herod, the name Herod in Scripture, I'm uh, I get the feeling like I'm in a bad Bob Newhart. Episode. Uh, This is my brother, Daryl, and this is my other brother, Daryl. I can't keep them all straight, and I don't want to get us bogged down with this, but can you sort out all the different Herods for us and then tell us which Herod uh, we're talking about here that is the uh, insane guy who has all of the uh, children in and around uh, Bethlehem slaughtered?
2: Yeah, this is, the one that we're talking about is Herod the Great, and he's probably the most famous of the Herods. He's the one who built uh, a lot of, architectural things that were unique and exciting for the time that he built them and some of which, uh, the remains of which are still around today. And so, for example, uh, the the temple remodel with the expanded temple mount, uh, that was the work of Herod the Great. And so the temple mount that you see today, uh, those stones were laid in place by workers at the payment of uh, Herod the Great. He also built uh, south of Jerusalem and visible uh, from Bethlehem. Uh, kind of his home and his mausoleum which is interestingly a circular architectural design with uh, four towers and a circle in between the two of the uh, the four of them Uh, and that's where he'll be buried although he dies in the city of Jericho Uh, So lots of these architectural things, uh, even you can see them in um, the city of Caesarea Maritima. This is Herod the Great. He's the one who built them, and he's the one who's going to kill these people. Now, Herod is not very creative. He gets married um, several times to several different women, and he has kids, and he names a lot of them Herod after him as well. So we have Herod Philip. We have Herod Antipater. We have uh, Herod, uh, lots of different names. Even his daughter he names uh, Herodias. And his family tree goes on this way for a long time. And so uh, we have then a different Herod who is a descendant who is the one who condemns Jesus to death. And that would be, um, uh, make sure I get it right, Herod, I believe, Archelaus or Herod Antipater. Uh, And then he has grandson Herod, Agrippa II, great-grandson, who's the one who sees Paul preach in the 60s AD. And so it is hard to keep them all track. And you can see I'm even struggling with it a little bit but this is Herod the Great that's the key thing for this particular text okay
1: thank you and uh, thank you uh, for sharing that expertise with us to be able to uh, and I know I know I just kind of caught that uh took that uh, I didn't prepare you. No. I didn't prepare you for this at all. Okay, so the this text really, while it includes the flight into Egypt, that's that's not the important thing for this uh, particular deal. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two year old or under. We're coming up on our first break, Pastor, and the question that's so often Uh, comes up here is so what are we talking about how many kids could there possibly have been in uh, bethlehem this probably wasn't uh, that big of a tragedy we have people killed on our streets in america every weekend uh you know and so um what, what's the big deal with this? And so when we come back from our break, what uh, what I want you to be able to share with us is what do scholars estimate, what what are we talking about for the scope of this tragedy, and why is this a tragedy? Not because of the number of the babies slaughtered, but because of what's actually going on here with this particular slaughter is uh, is that a fair fair way to uh, pose it that sounds good okay we'll be right back proclaiming the one the holy innocence December 28th
0: you are listening to KNNA LP ninety five point seven FM Lincoln, Nebraska. Yeah, if I prefer not in my mouth, the of the Lord in the day of Jerusalem. Oh, they
1: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We're looking at the Holy Innocents, Martyrs. The church has set aside December 28 to remember, honor, and commemorate the uh, slaughter of uh, the Holy Innocents or gospel reading that records this uh, horrific act, Matthew 2, 13 to 18. We are, uh, we're listening to some... Uh, very somber but beautiful music. A, uh Choral rendition of Psalm 137. Pastor Moline gave us the details of that in our uh, opening segment. Um, I left you with a uh, particular question. You know, you, you did a great job of recounting what happens in Matthew 1 and the first half of Matthew 2. We have the visit of the Magi, we have them uh, worshiping and adoring the Christ child. We have Herod, who is uh, sick with uh, jealousy and will do anything to remove competition from him and the throne. And this is Herod the Great. He uh, expects the uh, Magi to do his dirty work, to find the uh, Christ child so that uh, he can go and worship him. And, uh, you know, the more I thought about that, that section in, um, in Matthew is uh, it's it's really spot on. He does want to worship him. He wants to worship him in his own way. And he w- wants to worship him by murdering him. And uh, there, there are still people like that today a- in our world, and we don't like to think about that. But uh, this leads us up to this uh, dirty, dastardly deed. Herod, uh, and again, Matthew 2, verses 8. Oh, man, no, it's not... I can't uh, read my verses there, 16 and following. Um, When he saw that he had been tricked by the wise man, became furious, he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to that time, that he had ascertained from the wise men. So, Pastor, uh, we're probably not talking about a huge number of babies here. And, um... It is not the number of babies that are slaughtered, but the, the act in and of itself that makes this so horrific. So help us put some perspective into all of this with regard to why this is such a big deal that the church has set this day aside.
2: Well, uh, you know, the numbers uh, that were slaughtered are probably pretty small. The reality is is that many of the villages and towns that are in Israel at that time are probably two to 300 people, maybe 400 at the most. The people live in caves, uh, cave homes, where they excavate uh, into a kind of a steep hill or cliff and build their homes above that. And you can see lots of the remains of these particular little villages if you go and look around Israel. So it gives you an idea, small town. So it's probably six or seven kids at the most that are slaughtered. That's not really the the main point, the amount of kids that are slaughtered. but the reality is is that the world and Satan are so intent on destroying all of God's good work of salvation that they will even go to the uh, extreme of murdering other people to try and stop what Jesus is going to accomplish. And we see this kind of as a pre prefiguring of what's going to happen to Jesus himself at the time of Good Friday, but we also see it as a fulfillment uh, of things that have happened in the Old Testament. So we have uh, Moses, uh, the birth of Moses, where Pharaoh is seeking to destroy the Hebrew race and has all the firstborn sons thrown into the Nile. And in a sense, Moses himself is, just in a basket instead, um, and he's saved from the water the same way he's going to save the people of Israel through the water, the same way that the people of Israel are going to be led into the promised land through the water, the same way that Jesus is going to be baptized. We have all these things being brought together in this idea. We also have in Jeremiah, and I, I know this will be our Old Testament lesson, where it talk about the, um, the children of Rachel, the uh, she's weeping for them because they are no more and uh, so we see that fulfilled and it, it also teaches us where it's going to happen because rachel traditionally is buried in bethlehem and her tomb is nearby to where christ is born and so it's not many people but the idea is that the death of these children is then connecting all these old testament texts and also prefiguring the crucifixion and resurrection of our lord jesus christ
1: it is uh Uh, making those connections is great and it's more than just a a Sunday school exercise especially the similarities with regard to Moses and uh, because Moses is in Egypt and then Jesus and uh, Mary and Joseph have their flight to Egypt Uh, when I was when I was young I, I did not I couldn't comprehend you know that when the people would talk about the flight to Egypt well they didn't have airplanes back then and uh, you know I think we need to choose our words wisely because our our kids sometimes are very confused by that but I want to where I want to go next pastor is the title of this day is the holy innocence we believe teach and confess that we are by nature sinful and unclean these kids were not innocent They were poor, miserable sinners. In what respect, then, do we call this day the holy innocence? Help us uh, put in perspective or understand the fact that uh, this is a right and proper title because these kids were innocent, and yet at the same time, they weren't innocent because of original sin you follow where I'm tracking with that?
2: I do. Um, and, you know, they are sinners just like everybody else, and they need to be redeemed by the blood of Christ uh, just like anybody else. And their blood isn't for redemption of anything either. It's not like this blood is what makes Christ holy or any nonsense like that. Um, but they are uh, innocent in the sense that they are not killed for anything that they have uh, done. They aren't robbers. They aren't thieves. They aren't um sp- speaking out against the rulers or anything like that, they're merely killed because they are in the same location that Jesus had been. And so when we get to the time of the year where we celebrate these feasts, uh, the, the Holy Innocents, this is December 27th, I believe. 28th. Uh, 28th, 28th. Okay, so we have then St. Stephen's Day the 26th. Uh, St. Saint John. St. John the um, 27th. 27th. And so you have these kind of ideas that come out of uh, medieval Christianity. St. Thomas Aquinas talked about it uh in some of his writings where we have martyrs in will and martyrs in deed and martyrs in will and deed and uh so we have saint stephen who is a martyr indeed he is um, killed for confessing christ we have saint john who is a martyr in will he's willing to be he's boiled alive but it doesn't kill him and he dies an old man and then we have these um holy innocents who are uh, martyred even though they have no desire to be, but they are still killed because of Jesus Christ. And so we see this idea and and we take that idea and apply it then to our own lives and and um, the reality that we face persecution
1: in the world the same way that those groups of individuals did. So th- so the uh, these children here have committed no crime. They are innocent of anything that would be uh, punishable, even close to the death penalty. Now, I'm going to ask you one more step in this progress here, Pastor. Lutherans are often, and pro-life Roman Catholics, pro-life evangelicals, are often criticized because they take a very pro-life stand with regard to abortion. And at the same time, believe in and even advocate for capital punishment. How does this seeming contradiction with regard to abortion, uh, anti-abortion and pro-capital punishment, how does that connect us with regard to the innocent label here on this day, the holy innocence?
2: Yeah, well, and uh, we're even more confused about it now because uh, Francis has made a mess of this whole idea. But the reality is is that God has given authority to the government to put people to death for the good of neighbors. And so this happens in the military. Uh, the military has the authority from God to wage just war to protect its citizens or the citizens' uh, possessions. And the same idea then can be applied to police force as well. If uh, Vicar Steele is going around murdering people and putting them in his freezer to eat, um, the government has the authority to stop him from doing that, even if it means putting him to death, and that is in their proper authority. Now, the, this particular case, the slaughter of the innocents, is not that, because these children are not doing anything uh, that is justly deserving death, and therefore the government, in putting them to death, has overstepped its bounds. Excuse me, I had to sneeze there. So uh, I've lost track of my question.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, you know, Christians, uh, pro-life Christians who advocate for um, the proper punishment for criminals uh, up to and including capital punishment are often criticized as being inconsistent. And... Uh, This is not an inconsistent position. In fact, it is very, very consistent. And the uh, Holy Innocence here brings out so so many side topics and so many things. The fact that evil exists in this world. The fact that political leaders sometimes act in their own interest instead of the interests of the people that God has given them to rule. The fact that Uh, political leaders have been put in place by God. And there are times when we must obey God rather than man. All of these things are present in and through this particular text that we're we're looking at. And uh, we don't want to detract in any way, shape, or form from the horror of this day. And yet at the same time, We rejoice because one was spared. And that one who was spared did make the flight to Egypt. Vicar, why was Jesus spared? Jesus came into the world to die for sinners. Uh, He could have died right here uh, at the hand of Herod, at the sword of the soldiers. But... uh, God spared him what's up with that
3: well you're right he could have died but God spared him because in the knowledge and in the plan of God it wasn't yet Jesus time to die Jesus came not only to be born as a child but he also came to grow as a man and as a fully grown man to die on the cross he came for little children and he came for fully grown adults he is the second Adam, and Adam wasn't a child, per se, when he fell into sin. He was a man, and so Christ as the second Adam does what Adam could not do, fulfills God's will, and dies for you and me.
1: Yeah, I think I think all of that is spot on, and uh, another way to answer that is, uh, we don't know. G- God could have done it this way, but in God's infinite wisdom, uh, he deemed that Jesus at age... Roughly 33 would go to the cross and bleed and died, Pastor?
2: Well, and, and uh, Christ has been taught and talked about through all the Old Testament. We have Isaiah saying this is what it's going to look like. And so to try and say, you know, it would have been okay for a man to take this matter in their own hands and kill him when he was a baby would deny the reality that God's been setting everything up perfectly for, you know,
1: 5,000 years before the birth of Christ. And all those prophecies are going to be fulfilled one way or the other, just like Vickers said. We need to take another break. When we come back, we're going to look at that Old Testament reading, Jeremiah 31, 15 to 17. Don't change that dial.
0: You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. you I forget the future.
1: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors, Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, Vicar Steele. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. Come join us for worship, 8 and 10.30 on Sunday, 6.30 Wednesday evening, year-round. At Good Shepherd, we have an opportunity, because of our Wednesday evening service, to... um, celebrate and observe many of the minor festivals, feast days, and occasions. Uh, With three minor festivals coming so quickly after Christmas, it is uh, really, really difficult to focus on all of them. Most of the time, we only get a chance to do one of them. And when the Holy Innocence lands on a Sunday, um, the Sunday after Christmas, it is always a uh, time that we can set aside and honor and remember as well. This is a uh, this is a day that if it gets overlooked in December can really be observed anytime uh in our church here and the readings for the holy innocents even though the day that's set aside is December 28 anytime a congregation is looking to have a sanctity of life Sunday uh, whatever time of the year it is, whatever date it is on the calendar, this is uh, this is a, a certainly a great option to look at. In our uh, first two segments, we examined the Holy Gospel reading for the Holy Innocents Martyrs, Matthew two thirteen to eighteen, and now we want to change and uh, l- shift our focus at least a little bit to the Old Testament reading from Jeremiah thirty one, Jeremiah thirty one fifteen to seventeen. Vicar. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah,
3: lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children, because they are no more. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping, and your eyes from tears, for there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children shall come back to their own country.
1: Okay, we, uh, we have a three-verse snippet pulled out of one of the longest books in all of Scripture in the prophet Jeremiah. And uh, uh, Pastor, we're going to ask you to make some historical sense out of all this. We're about roughly halfway through the book of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. We know that in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following, we have some of the most beautiful, beautiful gospel that you can uh, possibly imagine with all the uh, new covenant talk. And so this is, uh, you know, uh, God is wonderful with regard to law and gospel. Some of the most severe law in uh, the earlier part of the chapter and some of those beautiful gospel in the later part of the chapter. So tell us what's going on. A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. This is quoted in Matthew 2, and we held off uh, in our Matthew discussion because we knew we were going to get a chance to look at this uh, source of this quote. What is Rama? Who is Rama? Uh, You know, I, I remember Rachel from the Genesis story. Is this the same Rachel? Is this symbolic of something? Help me out.
2: Yeah, uh, well, first off, the area of Ramah is kind of an important thing. It's mentioned several times throughout the scriptures. We have it, uh, especially in like the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, when we talk about the people returning from exile in Babylon, one of the places it mentions is Ramah. And uh, Ramah is uh, technically an area of the tribe of Benjamin, which you remember Judah and Benjamin become the southern kingdom that is eventually taken away in exile. Hence, people returning there after uh, Babylon. Um, Ramah would be uh, an area not far away from Jerusalem, uh, about the same distance from Jerusalem as it is to Bethlehem, and the reality is that those places are really, really pretty close to each other. They probably all would fit within the city of uh, Lincoln uh, if, if you put them on a map. They're not they're not terribly far apart, but in that that time, you had to walk between each place, and so they are separate cities, and they are uh, apart from each other. And Ramah is mentioned here because uh, it is then also traditionally in this area, uh, this this place that is not in Jerusalem but nearby, that Rachel is buried. Uh, Her tomb is located today very, very, very close to the city of Bethlehem. In fact, To get into Bethlehem, you drive right by Rachel's tomb. Uh, And today, if I remember correctly, there's a mosque that's there because the uh, Muslims celebrate Rachel as well. And so you have this idea that Rachel is weeping for her children. Now recall, Pastor Poppy, what happened to Rachel's children uh, in the book of Genesis.
1: Well, you have uh, Rachel, who is the— a wannabe wife of Jacob, and you have Rachel and Leah who are combating for uh, the soul husbandship. And uh, God has promised that it would be through this line that the Savior of the world would be born. And the big, the- the big thing with Rachel, the thing that most people remember with regard to Rachel, is that she can't have kids. And, and, and she doesn't accept for it later on. And then God miraculously allows her to give birth to Joseph and Benjamin. Exactly, and so Joseph
2: uh, and Benjamin. We have this idea that Ramah is in the tribe of Benjamin area, and then we have this idea too that Joseph, uh, Rachel believes that he's been murdered uh, uh, by wild animals, and then you have
1: when uh, you know we t- we talk about you know Jacob's mourning all the time in Scripture, especially at the end of the uh, book of. Of Genesis yes we don't talk about Rachel at all but what we do right here in Jeremiah R- right here in Jeremiah she believes that is, that is just that's one of those lightning bolts for me
2: she believes Joseph has been killed by wild animals, murdered in that way. And then even um, when the brothers go down to Egypt to get food, you have Benjamin held in prison and jail there uh, with all the nonsense between Joseph and his brothers going on. And, and is so, Rachel still
1: alive at that time? Well,
2: she's she. I believe she dies um, right— after Joseph is taken and probably even in the midst, if not right before Benjamin is arrested there. And so we have this idea, she is in mourning and weeping because of her children, buried in Bethlehem, which is the place then where Jesus is going to be born. And so when we're hearing these words from Jeremiah, Jeremiah is tipping us off to where Jesus is going to be born and that this martyrdom of all these innocent children is going to take place in that area as well.
1: Okay, and uh, that that was awesome. Thank you. Thus says the Lord in uh, verse 16. Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, declares the Lord. Now, uh, I know we have some of this uh, prophetic perspective thing going on, and we're talking about more than one thing. I know we've got the return from exile, which is all over in the book of uh, Jeremiah, but God is not telling people to not mourn when they hurt to not mourn when someone dies. There's more to it than that. Pastor, what's happening here? Well, yeah, he's talking about the reward for the work.
2: And what he's looking forward to, first off, is, yes, the return from exile. But then also further on, he's talking about the resurrection. Um, Again, the medieval uh, Christian writers oftentimes thought of uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel as the four Gospels of the Old Testament. Uh, We still talk that way a lot about Isaiah. Isaiah talks about the incarnation, and so we read Isaiah at the time of Advent. Jeremiah talks a lot about the passion, and so we read Jeremiah during the season of Lent. Uh, And that's why then this text, we take it and we see when it talks about the return, the reward, we're looking towards the resurrection. And that promise then is there for all those who have faith uh, and all the people of the world will be raised in the last day, those who have faith given eternal life. Uh, And that's the promise then with Rachel mourning uh, and with all mothers mourning the loss of their children and with all those who mourn the loss of anyone, that in Christ there is resurrection, there is hope, there is promise.
1: Vicar, when uh, when people are told at the time of mourning that God will change their tears of sorrow into tears of joy. Is that pious nonsense, or is that a real promise?
3: It's a real promise that often devolves into pious platitudes because we don't know what to say when someone's mourning all the time, and so we try and give them some semblance of Comfort, but the way we talk about it and say it to them is just kind of in a passing by. But no, God really will turn tears of mourning into tears of gladness because all those who have faith in Christ will be raised on the last day. So if you tell someone that, don't tell them that as you're patting them on the back. Tell them that, looking them in the eyes, and tell them, and your tears will be tears of gladness because Jesus is raised they will be raised, and you too will be raised.
1: It's a Christian promise, and if it's anything less than a Christian promise, it can turn into nothing but pious platitudes. Pastor, throughout the book of Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, talks about hope. And in verse 17, there is hope for your future. One of the most abused Bible passages in all of Scripture is Jeremiah 29.11. I will give you a hope and a future. And people look at that and apply it to everything from changing jobs to changing their socks, uh, that they've made the right choice or whatever. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. What is the hope that God is giving us in all of Scripture, but especially here in the book of Jeremiah?
2: Yeah, it's a bigger hope than any of the things that we really think about. It's not the hope that now that you have the vaccine, you can go back to your normal life. It's not the hope that if you save your money, you can retire. It's not the hope that, uh, you know, your children will take care of you in your old age. It's the hope of resurrection, that life eternal through Jesus Christ, our Lord.
1: And why is that, uh, I don't want to beat a dead horse here, why is that hope the only hope that is true hope.
2: Well, everything else that we hope for in this life ultimately will disappear and be destroyed on the day of judgment and fire. Uh, and so the only hope that matters anything is the hope of resurrection because that's then when we
1: get everything. The, uh, the way people and to all too often Christians look at hope is getting something temporal that they want. I hope it rains. I hope the stock market goes up. Uh, I hope the person I voted for gets elected. And we look at so short-sighted with these things. And when God's Word talks about hope, it's a whole different kettle of fish. We are talking about eternal hope, and it's time for Christians to start thinking, acting, and confessing that way as well. We need to take a short break. This is proclaiming the one majoring in the minors. We're looking at December 28, the Holy Innocence. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back.
0: You are listening to KNNALP LP. 95.7 FM Lincoln, Nebraska. It's my
1: Welcome back to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. Today we're parking the car on December 28th, the Holy Innocents Martyrs. Uh, We have suggested that uh, since there are so many minor festivals that come back to back to back in the days following Christmas, that uh, it might be an opportunity to transfer one, uh, one or more of these minor festivals like the holy innocents to a different time in the church year any time that uh, congregation would like to Celebrate, honor, and observe the uh, sanctity of human life. The sanctity of human life emphasis is usually around the anniversary of Roe v. Wade, which means middle to uh, the second third of January. Uh, There are many times in the summer when uh, it is uh, appropriate to be looking at the uh, sanctity of human life. And there are many other Uh, opportunities too with the minor festivals and so uh, just kind of plant that seed today in our first segment we uh, first two segments we looked at our gospel reading Matthew 2 13 to 18 In our third segment, we looked at the fulfillment of the prophecy in Jeremiah 31, 15-17, and uh, Pastor Pastor Moline waxed eloquent with Rachel, but he did want to make one thing clear before we move on.
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think I was completely clear. The idea of Rachel weeping because her children have been taken away is a personification. She does die in the the death or it dies in the birth of Benjamin and so uh that's the weeping in the morning then too for her but this idea that she's sad because her children have been taken away is carried through in this personification of her in the women and the people that are still around and so so I, I don't think i was clear about that and on the fly it's hard to keep track of everything in your brain
1: right and uh can we make, I mean, I'm just uh, shooting off the cuff here again, too, Pastor. Can we make any connections between the weeping of Rachel and the weeping of the Virgin Mary? Uh, with the uh, cross of Christ? I think
2: we probably could, and I think we could do it with a lot of other women. So uh, I didn't get into all this. Ramah would be the home of um, Hannah, and would be the birthplace of Samuel as well, which brings the same idea. Uh, I think Samuel also had a home there, if I remember correctly. Uh, So it's a common theme in that area. Okay,
1: cool. Um, the uh, introit for the Holy Innocents is Psalm 31, uh, selected verses, verses 1, 3, 5, and the antiphon is from Revelation 7:14. The gradual is a few verses from Psalm 71. And our second reading or our epistle, depending on how you want to uh, categorize it, is from Revelation 14. Again, we're pretty much halfway through the book. This uh, 144,000 number is bantered about uh, in a lot of ways, some good, mostly bad. Um, What is happening here? Who is talking? Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000. Who's doing the talking? Where is Mount Zion or what is Mount Zion? Who's the lamb? What's this 144,000? Can you give us just some, some basic grammar with regard to Revelation 14, verse 1?
2: Yeah, the one who's doing the looking and thereby also the uh, writing of this text is St. John the Evangelist, uh, who is seeing this in a vision he received on the island of Patmos in his exile following the attempted boiling to death of him in hot oil. Uh, The lamb that we see here is the crucified and resurrected Jesus Christ, uh, and he's seen in the book of Revelation as victor and as king and lord, and he also is always located the exact same place that God is uh, in the midst of the throne where God is sitting and in the, in, they're in the same sort of location teaching us the Holy Trinity here as well. The 144,000 that we see is the church um, and when I say the church I mean the church both Old Testament and New Testament all the people of all times and places who believed what God's words said uh, and believed that God was God The Trinitarian God was God. That's the church there. The number 144,000, you know, can be the 12 uh, of the Old Testament and the 12 of the New Testament brought together uh, in this particular time. So those are the answers to those
1: questions. Okay, so now we have this uh, basic grammar uh, kind of stuff that's going on here. And... Well, Pastor, uh, following up on that, then uh, it goes on in verse 1 to say, uh, Who had the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads? Now, you talked about the father and the son always being together, but what is this forehead thing going on? And you got so much talk about the mark of the beast going on in our world today 666. All this, I mean, is there any connection to the number, to the mark, uh, to help us out?
2: Well, in a sense there is, but it's probably not the way that people think. This idea that the name of God the Father and God the Son is written on their forehead is a uh, reminder of baptism. And baptism, you know, is water poured upon the child or the person in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, We mark them with the sign of the cross both upon their forehead and their heart to mark them as one redeemed by Christ crucified. These are ancient practices that have been carried on throughout all the generations of the church. And so this name being on their forehead uh, is a reminder that they are those who are baptized and believe the the word of God. And so um, it is connected then to the mark of the beast because in a sense, those people who are not Christians are baptized into death, into the the things that Satan brings about. And so they also are marked in that particular way. And all these things are kind of like branding cattle or putting ear tag in cattle um, because they're showing you who these people belong to. And so in baptism, we're marked as belonging to God, the Father, and the Son. And uh, we don't see that mark, but God does, just like cattle, get used to ear tags and brandings and don't pay attention to that. They
1: don't understand, but it tells us who they belong to. Uh, Dog collar, same kind of thing. Same thing. Verse 2, and I heard a voice from heaven, like the roar of many waters and the sound of loud thunder. The uh, voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. Okay, so we have, we have loud thunder, and we have the roar of many waters, and then harpists playing many harps. Those three things don't seem to go together, Pastor. What, what is this voice and this noise that's coming here? I assume it's safe to say that this voice is the voice of God, but uh, um, th- these are some unique descriptors here.
2: Well, it is um, God. Yes, that's the the voice that is like thunder and many waters. And that's the way that God is described as having his voice sound many places in the scripture. Uh, But I also say it's the voice of the church as well. And it shouldn't be surprising to us in that regard. It kind of says that here in the next verses. It's not surprising because what does the church say except for what God has told them? And so they sing and speak the same words together. And that's then the idea that, uh, you know, essentially what confession is, we say what God says, that's what a confession truly is. So you see these, this whole thing
1: together, God and the church are of one voice together. And that's the 144,000 singing this new song that comes up in verse 3. They were singing a new song. I assume that the they is the 144,000 now uh, are singing this new song, unless it's God and the 144,000 together. Yeah, I think it's
2: ambiguous in that regard, but at
1: least they're all saying the same thing. Yes. And And then we have this... Kind of a little caveat here. It says, no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. So, what in the world is this sort of an exclusive club for? You know, we we, we see politicians criticized for this all the time. They belong to a yacht club and only certain kinds of people can belong. Uh, and here, now in Revelation 14, no one could learn this song except the 144,000. Pastor?
2: Well, I mean, it's the reality of faith, right? And I think it says it differently elsewhere in Scripture that no one could say Jesus is Lord except by the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the same sort of thing here. Uh, No one can sing the song except by the work of the Holy Spirit and being in the faith then. And so, again, it's showing this unity in the church of one common Christian faith.
1: The, uh, The phrase, the scandal of particularity, comes to mind here. And it is scandalous that only Christians are going to go to heaven. This is, uh, this is scandalous to the world. This is clearly taught in Scripture. And there are sometimes well-meaning Christians who want to water that down, who want to uh, you know, be all roads lead to heaven, all gods are the same. And this is the most terrible, hurtful, wicked, evil lie that could possibly spew forth from the church. Am I right, Pastor? You are, and in fact, if we go back to our Old Testament lesson, and if you
2: read the rest of the Book of Jeremiah, that's the problem that they have uh, in in uh, ancient Judah that led to Nebuchadnezzar destroying them. God's mad of them because they are worshiping Baal and uh, him in the same location in the same way.
1: Peace, peace, where there is no peace. Pastor, very, very quickly, uh, I want to I want to get this kind of a thought here with Revelation 14. How does this picture of heaven from Revelation 14 fit with our observance of the holy innocence martyrs?
2: Well, uh, it is seeing... Um, this 144,000 the church in heaven and it reminds us of what the promise is for all the people who believe in Jesus whether they're martyred whether they die of a good old age whether they are uh, drowned at sea or uh, die in a nursing home and are buried in a a named grave uh, no matter what the instance is those who have faith in Jesus Christ receive the promise of resurrection and life everlasting and uh, that's the promise for those who die in the womb that's the, uh, the in the faith. That's the promise for those who are still born in the faith. That's the promise of the baby who is baptized and uh, has faith and and uh, dies from SIDS in the crib. Um, in Jesus Christ, those who have faith in all stages of life receive the promise of resurrection
1: and life. Amen. Well said, Vicar. Would you bring things to a close by praying the Collect of the Day for the Holy Innocents?
3: Let us pray. Almighty God, the martyred innocents of Bethlehem showed forth your praise, not by speaking, but by dying. Put to death in us all that is in conflict with your will, that our lives may bear witness to the faith we profess with our lips. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever.
1: Amen. 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 For Pastor Moline and Vicar Steele, I'm Pastor Clint Poppy. Thank you for tuning in today to Proclaiming the One, Majoring in the Minors. We will be back again soon. God's richest blessings in his resurrection promise.